Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would guide us and speak to us. We thank you for your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, if you'd open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm getting a lot of reverb up here just to let you know. It sounds like it's going to give a lot of feedback. I'd rather say that at the beginning. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Today we're going to look at a message called the power of the cross. As we think about going into Palm Sunday, here we are at Palm Sunday. I want us to just think about what takes place the week of Christ entering the city of Jerusalem. And we, we get into that. Mike read it uh, out of John's account. We think about Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. We think about Monday, where Jesus is teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. We think about Tuesday, where we're dealing with the last day that he teaches before it transitions. And, and he says something as he leaves the temple on that Tuesday. He says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and, and, and what it says here is, notice, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And we read so many times in the Gospels that the time had not come. It was not his time. Well, under the, the sovereign hand of God, it was time. It was time now for the plan to unfold. Here during the Passion Week, we, we read through the events of this week on Wednesday. It's a unique day. It's the day where Jesus goes to the home of Simon the leper. And it's there while he's at the home of Simon that Mary of Bethany comes and anoints his head and his feet with that incredibly expensive flask of perfume. We go on and we get into Thursday and we look at all that takes place in the upper room. And late into the evening on Thursday, Jesus and his disciples take that journey over to the Garden of Gethsemane. But everything we look at when we think about the week of the Passion is we're thinking about all the events that take place that culminate in Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. When we think about the cross, we're dealing with so many different theological ramifications. If you think about the Apostle Paul, I want you to consider, if you took away the language of the cross, it would not make any sense. If you took away all the references that Paul uses of the cross and uses of how that takes place in salvation, his theology would have this gaping hole. I read a quote by A.W. Tozer, the very power of the cross lies in the fact that it is the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man. And isn't that the way Paul deals with his teaching on the cross? I'm going to go through several passages. I want you just to get a sense of like how critical was the theology of the cross to the apostle Paul. In Galatians 2.20, he says he's been crucified with Christ. We get into 1 Corinthians, and Paul says he decided to know nothing amongst the people except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
when he gets into Romans, he speaks about the believer's identity and life in Christ. And he says, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And and notice how when he speaks about his ministry and he speaks about his life, he points it all to the reality of the cross. And then he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember when he speaks about those that would come against him? And how did he refer to them? He referred to those enemies as enemies of the what? The cross of Christ. He speaks in Colossians of peace that we have through the blood of the cross. He speaks in Colossians 2.14, and he says it was at the cross our record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands was canceled. It's the cross. And and he says it again in Ephesians. He says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Of all the passages you could look at when you look at the cross and crucifixion in Paul's writings, over 20 I'm going to look at one this morning. I really believe that by God's grace, if you think about the youngest in here, you think about our junior hires, you think about our elementary kids, and you think about those that have been in church a long time. If we, by God's grace, could understand the text we're going to look at this morning, we would have an understanding of the theology of the cross and an understanding of the theology of the gospel. And and, and sadly, I'm convinced that a vast amount of church-going people misunderstand this completely. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to examine three truths concerning Christ that help us understand the power of the cross. Three central truths about Jesus Christ. And in this passage, I pray that we would not only, you know, today, I pray we were all sitting around looking at God's word and we understand these truths. But I pray that as we look at them, they would just grow our worship towards God. But I also pray that if you're here today and and you've never understood the gospel, you think favorably of Jesus but you've never understood the cross and the implications of the cross. I pray today it would not only encourage Christians in their worship, but I pray today it would open up eyes to see the glory of salvation through the cross of Jesus. Three truths. The first truth we're going to look at is his sinlessness. His sinlessness Three truths we read in in 21. Let's read the text. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's interesting. my, My two favorite translations are the ESV and the New American Standard, and I love both. Um. 
greatly. And, and, I, and I memorized this as, as a teenager or as an early 20s um, from the New American Standard. So when I read the ESV, it sounds so different to me from the way I first learned it. Same verse, but the translation of the New American Standard, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we take that ESV translation, the New American Standard ESV says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The sinlessness of Jesus. He knew no sin. Couldn't be said about ourselves. We know sin. We are born into sin. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We understand it because it taints us at the core. And when we look at this, we, we see that Jesus Christ is sinless. I, I was fascinated by this because you hear you hear these studies they do. I don't sometimes I wonder who they're talking to, but I do find it to be anecdotal in my own experience. I, I would say I can understand this. And, and this survey goes like this. Basically, they take a group of people, a segment of the population that would identify as Christian, and they ask them questions. Um, when they ask Americans in general that are not necessarily professing Christ, they believe at 52% that Jesus Christ, human, and he also committed sins like other people. 52% would agree with that. But then you would think that the Christian population, those that would profess the name of Christ, you'd think they'd be a little bit more solid in their theology on this. 44% of professing Christians believe that uh, Jesus sinned. 41% says he did not. I don't know what happened to the other five. I'm not great at math, but I know there's something missing there. No, there's more than that. 15. I told you I wouldn't get at math. <laughs> Jerry said 15. <laughs> Sorry, I, I tried so hard. I thought I was going to nail it. 15% didn't know. They didn't answer. That's disturbing, isn't it? If you think about it, that means that a great percentage of the population identifies Jesus as important enough to associate belief in him in some regard to their eternal estate yet they don't understand who he is as deity. I tell you, it reminds me of a passage Jesus says in the Gospels where he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It literally is, it says in the text, unless you believe that I am he, but it's, it's, it's a reference to Christ referring himself as equal with Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am. And when we look at this, it, it's critical that we understand Paul as he writes to the church at Corinth his second time around. It's one, I, you know, I used to hear this growing up, but if you're going to start a church, you know, typically you wouldn't want to name your church after Corinth because of the fact that it was the most unhealthy church in the New Testament. And it's interesting because sometimes the way we go to the church at Corinth to develop certain theological positions is fascinating because it was the most unhealthy church in the New Testament. 
And we see this dramatic change that takes place, though, when we get into 2 Corinthians. It gives us all hope. We can relate to the people of Corinthians because we understand sin and we understand, even as Christians, the struggle that we have. But we see God's grace working. And these people that were, were involved in so many different types of struggles and so many different types of sin, they were growing. And, and God's word was prevailing in their life. The spirit was beginning to change them. And, and one of the things that we see here is Paul writes about how they're called, how he's called, how ministers are called. The gospel compels us to be ambassadors for the gospel because we are new creations in Christ. And he's given us the implications of all these truths. Let, let's go back. I read you verse 21, but let's just read the, uh, a few more verses here to get acclimated with what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 5. And we get into verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then to sum it up, how in the world are we new creations? How in the world were our sins not counted to our account? And Paul explains it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You think about this and you go, how is that possible? If you were going to take the 41% that said, you know, how many times have you been uh, in a classroom setting? And uh, I can't, I don't like questions, you know, like on those tests. Because you start thinking and you think about this person sitting there that's answering this question and they're thinking, okay, I believe Jesus is a great teacher. I believe he did these great miracles. And then you can just sense that when they're asked about his sinlessness and perfection, they think to themselves, well, how could that be? Nobody's perfect. But they fail to understand how Jesus is revealed in the scripture. They fail to understand that in John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that He is the eternal Word. And significant and instrumental to the faith, He's, he's one in substance and one in nature with the Father. And then we read about this amazing demonstration of the wisdom of God, the love of God in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The eternal word took on human flesh becoming the God-man. 
that's the way that this is possible. We needed a Savior who was fully God and fully man, but the eternal one has come that we might live. So the first question we ask under the sinlessness of Christ and seeing his sinlessness is how? But but the second question that would be a good question to ask might be, where do we see this? Where is other scriptures that would support such a notion of this theological position? It's everywhere. First Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Look at how chapter 7 states it. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And and 1 John, the apostle says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. You could go to Romans 5, 19, Romans 8, 3, and 4. You, you get the, you really begin to understand this being stated when Jesus claims something. Think of the implications of what he says in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you think about all the implications of what it means to fulfill the law, to fulfill it. I mean, it's, it's the common notion that it, the one certainty in life is if you get a group of, you know, 10 junior high kids and you give them a list on the wall of what they can't do, just count to 20. And they're breaking the law. But we laugh because we look at those junior hires and we see ourselves. Right? We're like, whoa, they struggle with the same thing we do. And yet Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Years ago, I was uh, in college and I, God used my fifth year of college in an amazing way. I'd, I'd graduated, believe it or not, had a business major and I had a year of eligibility left and I wanted to come back to school. I wasn't ready to work and I had to figure out a way to justify it. And I had a minor in Bible, and I thought, well, I could get a Bible major. Sounded impressive. And so I played my fifth year, fourth year of basketball eligibility, and I went to school. And God used that year in my life tremendously and changed my whole direction. And I'll never forget, I was doing a Bible thesis on Isaiah 53, and, and I was studying what was the first century Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53, and I had to interview a couple of rabbis, if I remember correctly. And I was in the office of a rabbi in Chattanooga. And I'll never forget, we were looking at Isaiah 53. And I knew that he didn't believe that Jesus was the suffering servant of God because he wouldn't have been a rabbi had he believed that. But I was curious as to what his belief was about who the suffering servant of God was. Who did he believe fulfilled all of these characteristics of this suffering servant. And I'll never forget it. I'd never heard this. He looked at me and he said, I'll tell you how Isaiah 53 is fulfilled. He looked at me and he said, Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant of God is the righteous remnant of Israel 
during the Babylonian captivity. Now, if you're confused, I was confused too when I heard that. What does that mean? He believed that during the exile, those that trusted Christ were suffering and they were portrayed as the suffering servant of God. And they were going in essence to bring this upon the country, this, this redemptive work. But then I was reading and doing some studying and I came across this guy, Dr. Lapide was his name. And he said something that got me so excited. He said, wait a minute, you look at these categories and if you go through Isaiah 53, I would challenge you to do this. Take every description of the suffering servant and it's sort of like Cinderella's slipper. That slipper only fit one individual. And you begin to ask yourself, who fits the characteristics of Isaiah 53, and this is just one of them. But what does it say? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. But I want to focus on this last part. Although he had done no violence. And finally, and there was what? No deceit in his mouth. Well, wait a minute. Is that true of the righteous remnant? Is that true of Israel? Well, We've got problems because you remember when the prophet Isaiah was, was given the ability to see what was going on in the throne room of heaven? And he says, what? In that moment, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, when we look at Isaiah 53, 9, we're reminded that the Messiah, the suffering servant of God, had to be unlike even the most righteous of Israelites, Isaiah. He had to be perfect. And this is who Jesus was. The scripture reveals that Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb of God. It's, it's not only... It's not only there, it's something that's scriptural throughout. Why is this necessary? I want you to think about this. I was reading the catechism. We were going through some classes on Wednesday night, and we were were trying a a modern catechism with the students. And a catechism is really useful because it asks questions that we all should know and understand. And one of the questions said this, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Here's the answer. One who is truly human and also truly God. The next question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Now hear this. That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. But then listen to the next question. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. When we look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. 
and we begin to understand he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why was it necessary for our Savior to be both divine and human? It was the only way that we could find one who identified with us that could represent us perfectly as a divine substitute. Hebrews, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I love it. Hebrews 1, what did, what did we learn when we went through Hebrews? Hebrews 1, he is fully divine. Hebrews 2, he is fully human. And what is the author of Hebrews demonstrating? Jesus is our great high priest. He's sinless. Not only do we see his sinlessness in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see his substitution. Notice the first phrase there in the ESV, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The New American Standard is phrasing that substitution like this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's the idea for our sake, on our behalf. So we look at this and why do we need, why do we need a substitute? I pray you're beginning to see this as you think about the sinlessness that's represented in verse 21. Paul is clear to show the people that Christ was sinless. He was a sinless sacrifice. But why do we need a sinless sacrifice? I, I pray you've already seen that. But again, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we read that first half of Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. The problem is that God knows our hearts and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We've all said it before, I think, where, but I've heard a lot of people, maybe you have too, and this is, I hope, encouraging to you as to how we can show the love of Christ to others because people have shown the love of Christ and sharing it with us. But how many people, if you talk about the Lord to them and you say, hey, are, are you a, how do you think you're a Christian? Or what makes you feel like you're going to be okay with God and go to heaven one day? And often people will say, well, God knows my heart. Well, there lies the problem. My heart is deceitful and it's sick. And here's where it gets even more difficult. I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind. Now, here is the problem. If God knows your heart, he understands the sickness in it. And what does he do, though? Because he's holy, he gives every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Therefore, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. It is completely just for God to judge sinners who have committed acts of rebellion against him. 
But we keep going here. And think about this. Here is this meaning of the cross. Christ is sinless, but Christ on the cross acts as our substitute. I want you to think about this. What does this mean? How did Christ become sin for us? What does that mean? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. In what way is that true? I was reading someone that I've really learned a lot about this doctrine. And they they said here something that, that really, really helped me. Christ was not made a sinner, nor was he punished for any sin of his own. Instead, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever believe. All those sins were charged against him as if he had personally committed them, and he was punished with the penalty for them on the cross, experiencing the full fury of God's wrath unleashed against them all. In dying on the cross, Christ did not become evil like we are. When we look at this, we understand that Christ took our place, that he stood in our place at the cross. Look at the Old Testament backdrop here. Isaiah 53, earlier in that chapter that I read from earlier, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You may be with us today. I remember I was in, I was in college and I, and I began to understand that the Old Testament speaks about Messiah. And I'd never understood it. I'd heard it. I never understood it. And I began to, be, I began to marvel. I was like, wait a minute. You mean to tell me 700 years before Christ comes to this earth, Isaiah prophesies of his ministry and Isaiah predicts the way in which he would die. And what do we learn here? We're learning the language of substitution. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And then we read verse five, but he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then Isaiah shows us the ministry of Jesus in a snapshot. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And isn't it amazing that what Isaiah says in verse six sounds Pauline. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And you may be sitting there going, how does that work? They clearly didn't know each other. How does that work? Because the Holy Spirit of God was breathing out to these apostles the word of God. He was breathing out to the prophets the word of God and his message of a sinless substitute fills the pages of the word of God. He's our only hope. I, I think about basketball camp. We would 
I'd use an example and imagine uh, if you had a competition and, and you had to make seven out of 10 three-pointers, we'd all be in trouble. Seven out of 10. And, and they said, hey, you know what, though? You can, you can have anybody in the world that can come in and take your place to shoot those shots. If you know anything, I mean, the smallest thing about basketball, you would want Steph Curry to shoot for you because you're not worried anymore. He's the best shooter that ever lived. And now you're thinking, I need, if somebody's going to substitute, if somebody's going to shoot in my place, I want the best shooter. I told you before, I went to school with those little girls, uh, the Sutton twins. They were brilliant. They always, they always frustrated me because they did their book report like a month before it was due. I didn't like that. And uh, they always got hundreds every time. And it always discouraged me. I'd get like, you know, 78, 76, 64. And, and I'd always be like, Kelly, what'd you get? She'd be like, 100, 102. I'm like, how do you get 102? And, and, and she'd get it. But you know what? And, and, and how many of you can relate with me the most uncomfortable feeling in all of the earth? When you walk in and you're minding your own business and you walk into a class and, and immediately the sense of horror comes over you because people are looking at their books. Oh, no. We've got a test. Oh, my goodness. I've had that feeling. It's awful. Isn't it? Awful. Maybe you never experienced it. But... I would be like, I can't. And then at that point, you got two minutes to decide if you want to look at anything. It's not going to help. Where are you going to look? And in those moments, imagine if the teacher said, Stephen, it's not a big deal. Why don't you get somebody in this class to take the test for you? It's the Sutton girls. <laughs> and I want you to think about that today, y'all. I want you to think about something. The, the gospel of substitution is the message that we desperately needed someone to live their life for us because we were sinners deceived at the core. We were rebels. We suppressed the truth of God. We didn't receive it. And, and, and our, the wages of sin is death. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ lives the life that we were required to live, that you were required to live. Uh, so many times people will talk about Jesus when you talk about, hey, what's your hope? Jesus. But then you work it out with them. What do you mean by that? Well, I know that I, I do the best I can and I, I, I try to be a good person. But friend, today our only hope is casting ourselves on a sinless substitute who stood in our place. He's the sinless substitute that dies for us. Look, look how Peter says it. it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There it is. The righteous for the unrighteous. Substitution that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But then finally, we see the third truth about Christ. We see not only his sinlessness, we see his substitution, Finally, his salvation. And look at what it says in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then beautifully, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. There's a great exchange that takes place. 
typically like in history, if you, if you, if you study this, uh, people will say, you know, like, uh, the story of Martin Luther's conversion and the reformation and how he began to look at the teachings of the Roman Catholic church. And he realized that it wasn't the truth of the Bible. He realized that we're not justified by works. He realized that the teachings that he was dealing with as a, as a minister within the church of Rome, he had no peace. He had no hope. And he began to read the message of Galatians. He began to read the message of Romans. And he was tormented until he began to see, wait a minute, the sinless Christ died for sinners and salvation is free. It's a free gift. It's by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what began to happen was he began to see this great exchange. That The great exchange is that Christ takes my sin upon himself, but Christ credits to my account his righteousness. Have you ever experienced a credit to your account? That's a wonderful thing. Your bank account? I love credits to my account. And I, I told you this before, but I remember as a freshman at Bruton Parker College in South Georgia, bouncing checks for like $3 because I wanted chicken fingers. That's a nightmare. And I would always bounce like four or five checks at one time. It wouldn't be one. It'd be like five checks totaling $9. <laughs> I bought like a, I used a check for like a Snickers king size bar and a Coke. And it was like a $35 bank overdraft charge. And I would call dad in a panic. Dad, what? I don't know what I've done, but it's bad. What did you do? I need you to go to the bank immediately. I need you to credit to my account. Well, please give me money. I'm in trouble. And, and he would go. And amazing things would happen. Isn't it crazy how you can do that so fast now? Back then, it was like uh, it was like harder than traveling overseas. You know, you had to do all these things. And he would go, and there would be this bank transfer, and my account that was in the negative now would be in the positive. The only way that our accounts can be credited is righteousness is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Today, who are you depending on? Whose work are you depending on, friend? Think about it. Ask yourself that question. Like, at the end of the day, I'm not asking you, do you believe in Jesus? I'm not asking you if you read the Bible. I'm asking you when it all comes down to it, if you're going to meet your maker this afternoon, if something happens shockingly where you walk out of here and there's a horrible wreck right here on Broad Street and you die, if you stand before God, what gives you peace that you'll be okay with your maker? And ultimately, the way you answer that question demonstrates whether or not you understand the sinless substitution of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you depending on your goodness? Are you depending on your work? Are you depending on your charity? Are you depending on your heart? Are you depending on your good naturedness with people? Or is your sole hope and desperate plea the blood of Christ shed for you on the cross of Calvary? That's our only hope. 
a great exchange. And we receive that great exchange by grace through faith alone. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He credits God the Father credits believers' sin to Christ's account on the cross and his righteousness to theirs. And Christ takes our place. I love this. I was reading a, a commentary by Calvin, and he said, It is in the same manner assuredly that we are now righteous in him, not in respect of our rendering satisfaction to the justice of God by our own works but because we are judged of in connection with Christ's righteousness, which we have put on by faith that it might become ours. Amen. There's hope. There's hope that I can stand before God the Father and because of this imputation or because of the crediting of Christ's righteousness to my account, God the Father looks upon me and I'm declared in right standing because of this transfer. Amen? That's hope. That's hope. I like what Warren Wearsby says. He speaks about the illustration of this. You remember when... Uh, there was Paul's friend, Philemon. And do you remember Paul writes to him because Onesimus had ran off from him? And, and he says this to him. He says, Philemon, receive him as myself. And then he says, if he oweth thee, put that on mine account. If he owes you money, take it out of my account. I owed a debt I could not pay. And by grace through faith, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe for me, for you. Consider the grace in this. Consider the grace. One of my favorite part of the journey in Christ is that have you ever been in a place on your journey where you thought to yourself, I understand grace, I understand grace. And, and I, I pray you can, where you understand the concept, but then as you journeyed with Christ a little more and you studied God's word, have you ever thought, wait a minute, I've never seen it that way. It's even better than I thought. You ever, ever had that happen where you just sort of grow in, in, in an appreciation for the goodness and the grace of God. That's what you see here. You reflect on these passages and you go, wait a minute, this is who God is. It, Romans says, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So you see the beauty of this salvation, the beauty of what Christ has done for you, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. When you reflect on the cross this week, Reflect on the message of Galatians 3.13. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He became our substitute. How? Becoming a curse for us. 
Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then we see the union, the union, the blessed union of the salvation in him so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. That, that, that this has happened. This is why Paul says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through what? Faith in Christ, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what Paul's speaking about in Philippians 3.9. He's speaking the same reality as 2 Corinthians 5.21 in another place, because Paul understood earlier in his life, he depended on law-keeping to climb the law of works to make himself in right standing with God. But then he realized, nope, that's not the way it works. The only way I can be deemed in right standing with God is through the biblical principle of imputation. I need his righteousness credited to my account on the basis of grace through faith alone in the work of Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel's good news in him. Uh, we're now in him. All the blessings that we have are because we're attached to him. I remember an illustration of this that helped me years ago. Dad, years ago, I can't remember how old I was. I think I was 22 or something. He, he went to Dallas, Texas, and he was at a conference with uh, Dr. Tony Evans. And Dr. Evans looked at my dad after one of the afternoon sessions. He goes, you want to go to the Dallas Mavericks game tonight? And my dad was like, yep. He says, come on. Dr. Evans was the chaplain for the Dallas Mavericks at the time. And they went. And he said, and I remember he got back and he was sharing it to the congregation and it helped me. He said, you know, he goes, we pulled up in a parking lot not normal people could park in. And we got out and everybody else was going through this long line. And we went through this VIP door. And it was as if when I walked through that door, they looked at me funny. And Dr. Evans was like, he's with me. He's with me. He says, we went not only there, but we went into a special place to get food. And everything that I got in that room was because I was with him. We then left and went all the way down to the floor. And we didn't sit in the normal seats. We sat in chairs behind the bench. Why? I didn't have the pass, but I was with him. And he looked at that story and he said, you know, everything I experienced in that arena was due to the association I had with Dr. Evans through the cross of Christ. We now are in spiritual union with Jesus. And all the spiritual blessings we read about in the New Testament are ours because of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about this over and over and over and over. He says that we are found in Christ. We are preserved in Christ. We are saved and sanctified in Christ. We walk in Christ, labor in Christ, obey in Christ. We die in Christ, live in Christ, conquer in Christ. He uses this term, these terms of in him over 200 times. And it's the mystical, beautiful, supernatural miracle of God's grace that those by grace through faith who depend on Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. We're united with Christ. The power of the cross is through the sinless substitution of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by grace through faith, he brings salvation to those who depend on him. This morning, here's the question. One question about union is this. Have you lost sight of this union? Have you ever understood this union? Maybe you're here today. I pray that it's like every, everybody I've ever talked to that's become a Christian, myself, if, in my own testimony, it's like there's a moment by the grace of God where the light comes on. Or all of a sudden you see things you never saw. I pray there's someone here today that's like, you know what? I've never, I've never seen this. I've never understood that salvation was more than an outward profession. Salvation was more than an attempt to live like Jesus. Salvation was more than just trying harder to be more ethical and more Christ-like. But understanding that salvation is the grace of the gospel through which Christ stands in our place as our sinless substitute and credits to our account and by his goodness only, a righteousness that we don't possess apart from him. This morning, have you trusted in this sinless substitute? Have you depended on him as your savior? I encourage you today, if you've never done that, I, I encourage you, I, I believe that even the language of Hebrews where the author says, today is the day of salvation. He's pointing it in that context to people to understand Respond to God's word as the Holy Spirit declares the truth. And where is the Holy Spirit declaring the truth? Through the word of God. So this morning, be encouraged. The Passion Week, the power of the cross is because his sinlessness, his substitution, and his glorious salvation. I pray today, not a person leaves that has not trusted Christ as their sinless substitute and experience the salvation that only he gives. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the miracle of the cross. I pray that this would... Um, Lord, not only open eyes that may have never seen this, but I pray that this would compel us as believers to such gratitude and joy. I pray that it would compel us to, to follow you with our whole heart. Thank you for the miracle of what you've done for us, of your grace of your work, of your substitution, of your life for us. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me in these last few moments.